Last week we looked at uh, Psalm 16, and this morning we're going to look at Psalm 22 as our meditation that leads us to the Lord's communion table. A couple weeks ago I was removing a, a pile of books, and I came across a notebook that my father-in-law, Paul Long, had had for, for many years, keeping a, a notebook on the Psalms and a meditation on each of the 150 Psalms. And he would often use a symbol to capture the, the meaning or the essence of the Psalm. And on Psalm 23, he gave a shepherd's staff with a crook in the staff. In Psalm 24, a crown for the Lord of glory. For Psalm 22, the cross. What's interesting to find in the Psalms is that there is a, a flow to the Psalms, that the Psalms were not collected at random, but they were put together in such a way as to carry you along in the understanding of salvation. And you see the connection there between Psalm 22, which talks about the cross, the fourth word from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And then Psalm 24, lift up your gates that the king of glory may come in. The cross, the crook, and the crown were his way of symbolizing that redemptive progression. I have a close friend who uh, lives in Ghana, and I first met David Mensa when he was working on a PhD at the University of Toronto on a theology of land. And uh, David and his wife Brenda have led a ministry for now over 30 years. He would move into a village, his team, he himself and a team, and they would help the village agriculturally, and they would help them medically, they would set up schools, and they might work in a village for several years before really explaining the gospel. It was a ministry motivated out of the gospel, out of a great humanitarian concern and compassion. They would live the gospel. But David, after a certain period of time, would gather the village together. Now, this is a village that's been helped in a number of different ways. He'd gather the village together and say, we've tried to serve you in ways that would help you, giving you a sustainable food security and things like that. But he said, we've really kept the best part from you. We fed you the soup, but without the meat in the soup. Now, in a poor agrarian African village in northern Ghana, meat is a sustainable protein that uh, they really uh, take great stock and pride in. He said, we haven't shared with you the meat. This morning or this afternoon when he would be speaking, he'd say, today I'm sharing with you the meat. And he would go on to explain the gospel, the gospel of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. He would underscore the fact that the humanitarian aid, as important as it is, did not save people for everlasting life that the most basic and fundamental problem of hunger and physical security and the kind of peace that, uh, of civil strife, those kinds of concerns, as essential and as important as they are, yet there is a concern for peace with God. 
for understanding your creator and taking in the provision of your redeemer. Psalm 22 is kind of the meat of the gospel. It takes us right to the heart of the concern that God has to redeem us. Now, we're in the West, and so oftentimes those physical concerns are not the things that the the church provides necessarily. But so much of our preaching and teaching is concerned on a kind of humanitarian level, your peace of mind, your sense of well-being, a a sense of wholeness. Psalm 22 is so intense, it almost seems like it's inappropriate for August 1st in the middle of the summer to take on a psalm that has the kind of intensity that Psalm 22 has. Listen carefully, this is God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, and my bones are on display. People stare, and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then you'll notice that there is a change in tone. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All who are descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. 
Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All will go down to the dust, will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will hold, will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Well, this is God's word. It's trustworthy and true, and it's given to us in love. There's great intensity in this psalm. There's, it's divided into three stanzas. And the first ten verses describe really vividly the agony of Christ on the cross. David wrote it for himself, but in terms of his own life, it's somewhat hyperbolic. It's how he felt, but it's not exactly what he experienced. But we can't read this psalm without underscoring the fact that it, it describes Christ. It describes Jesus on the cross. It describes Jesus experiencing the abandonment of the Father and the wrath of God of going to such a limit. It's not just Jesus identifying with us in our suffering. It's Jesus taking our place in our suffering. In 2014, 300 girls, students at Nigeria's Chibok Government Secondary School in northeastern Nigeria, were abducted by a terrorist group, Boko Haram, because they were in school. I mean, part of the reason that uh, the terrorists attacked that school was really not to take the girls. It was to find a brick maker, to find the machine that made bricks. But in the process of them terrorizing the school, they decided to take 300 girls. For more than two years, almost three years, those girls were held in captivity. And there's two uh, Wall Street Journal reporters, Joe Parkinson and Drew Henshaw, have written a book about the experience, Bring Back Our Girls. It became a social media phenomenon, as you know, uh, hashtag Bring Back Our Girls, from the White House all across the, internationally and governments paid attention to this and then lost, lost concern for it. Almost three years. I'm not sure that these uh, journalists are Christians. Uh, they don't confess to be. But they were really trying to understand how it is that these girls were able to sustain their identity and their hope. At many points, as you read the book, you realize that they faced a life-threatening situation at any time. They would come in and be challenged by uh, 
Numan or the, uh, the terrorists. Uh, and the terrorists wanted them to uh, agree to be married to the militants, to the fighters. And on one occasion, Naomi, one of the girls that they particularly followed because she wrote a journal that she hid for the three years. And uh, in that journal, she describes being one-on-one with the leader of the terrorist who's threatening death if she does not marry one of the militants. And Naomi looks at him in the eyes and says, well, then kill me. And I guess to realize that these girls, having just about graduated from high school, were so resilient. And these two Wall Street Journal uh, reporters said that they didn't go in thinking that their faith would sustain them this way, but they came to the conclusion that their faith in Christ provided the twin anchors of identity and hope that sustained them. They were willing to lose their life rather than give up their faith. They quote from the second verse. They memorized portions of Job. They memorized Luke 2 and identified with Mary and uh, her faith in God. But my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Well, it's not only they who identified with Psalm 22, but you find that the gospel writers all throughout identify with Psalm 22. These lines that we've read, and for some uh, familiar with the Gospels, it's, it's lines that are descriptive of Christ and the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fourth word from the cross. The first, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, the second, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. The third, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Words of salvation, forgiveness, and affection. And the fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you notice that in those ten verses, there's a kind of give and take between complaint and confidence, between lament and hope. A good pastor friend shared with me that uh, when he was a young Christian leading a Bible study, one night a sincere skeptic said to him in the study, said to the group in the study, well, if Jesus on the cross would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What hope is there for us? If he was struggling, how could we possibly survive? And... uh, My pastor friend at the time did not recognize that that line came out of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, you know, for years I felt guilty that I didn't have a good answer to this sincere skeptic who is kind of calling us out on this. And then when he discovered that it was in this psalm, he realized that the answer for the despair my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is in the psalm. And it shows the resilience of 
David in terms of feeling abandoned, Jesus who truly was abandoned, yet you enthr- that you are enthroned as the Holy One. Verse 3, you are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. So at the point of this agony of feeling abandoned, he reminds himself of the meaning and the theology of salvation history, of the big picture. There's a kind of weave of complaint. Abraham, David, Moses, at times they all felt abandoned by God. Job felt abandoned by God. But they were not truly abandoned. God was paying special attention with Abraham when he was uh, about to sacrifice his son Isaac. Job felt like he was on the ash heap, totally forgotten by God. But God was paying special attention to his resilient faithfulness in the wake of the temptation to give it all up. But Jesus, the one who by virtue of his being was one with the Father, Jesus who was one with the Father by virtue of his obedience and faithfulness was truly abandoned. He didn't just feel abandoned, he was abandoned. And the reason for that is spelled out clearly in the New Testament. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, the apostle Paul, he was so delivered over He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And again, by the Apostle Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. So how is it that David felt abandoned but wasn't, but Jesus was abandoned because of our sin? You see, that gets at the heart of the gospel, that we truly needed a substitutionary sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement. And this is why the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, because God came. fully human and fully God in order to pay the price for our sin. So Christianity ultimately is not designed to sort of make life go better, enrich marriage or give you a sense of, uh, of presence or get attached to something bigger than yourself. It's for this fundamental sacrifice that God has made on our behalf. It's hard sometimes, I think, for us to understand the wrath of God because I think a lot of expressions of wrath are temperamental. We lose it, that idea. A personal experience for me that helps me to understand the wrath of God 
was the wrath of my father. One afternoon, I got it in my head that uh, I was really young, but I got it in my head that I would set my car models on fire and uh, took a gasoline can in the garage and would uh, douse my models and light them on fire. And I was with my brother, who was three years younger. Open gas can, matches in hand, lighting up my car models. And somehow the smell drifted to the house from our detached garage. And my father came out and he exploded. He saw his two sons, gasoline cap open, lighting matches in the garage. He never touched me. He just was so intense how dangerous this was. And I saw his wrath on my behalf. He saw his two sons in a bane, uh, you know, a burn ward. And now, I'm 70, and now I can't look at a red gasoline can without remembering that moment. To me, it's a picture of the wrath of God that's on our behalf. Do you want to go to hell? Do you want to kill your soul? And God stepped in our place, becoming sin on our behalf so that we might be made righteous in Christ. And that's really the message there. The second stanza about being encircled by our enemies, there's 20 images. There's 20 images of what it is to be encircled, encircled by those who want to do you in. From bulls to ox to uh, just 20 images of that. And then it concludes on a very different note in verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. And in the, uh, in the letter to uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes from that 22nd verse. And he interprets it Christologically. He interprets it in the light of Christ. Uh, and theologians have called this last stanza from 22 on the fifth gospel. Because while it doesn't describe the resurrection, it describes the impact of the resurrection. And it turns on a dime. It goes from 20 images of being encircled by hate and evil to suddenly being completely free of that. The psalm starts, and we've got to get that down, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it proceeds with a sense of a complete reversal. And the author of Hebrews says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. 
both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, and this is where he quotes from the psalm, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praise. From 22 on, one thinks of Jesus' upper room discourse, thinks of his giving of the Great Commission, thinks of the discussion with the disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus said, didn't you know that I needed to suffer this? The law, the prophets, and the Psalms all testified to this. It's the resurrection that this psalm closes on with the fact that God's uh, truth and God's glory will be spread through all the nations. It reflects that long-range vision that Jesus spoke about in the upper room when he said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. The final word of the psalm, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It makes us think of the last word on the cross, or the second to the last word, the sixth word, it is finished. It also makes us think of the book of Revelation when in that climatic picture of Christ coming in glory where it says it is done. So you see, the gospel can give us a great deal. To be in the company of Christians who love the Lord, who are concerned to show compassion, who want to hold to the truthfulness of their word, who want to show kindness and respect, who want to help people educationally, who want to help people medically, who want to help people financially, the impulse and the motivation of the Christian ought to be wonderful to be around. But the heart of this is a truth that is really challenging. To come to terms with the fact that it's not only sort of the good things that Christianity can bring, but a confession that I need. I need Christ's atoning sacrifice. I need this which in so many ways to a secular mind is just incredible to grasp. And yet it is the truth of the gospel. The cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is answered in the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me.